Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You know my just from various documentaries about everyone's favourite emperor, Caligula. My guest today is Anthony Barrett. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be able to talk to you about a topic that I love talking about. <laughs> so, instead of asking a usual question, I want to ask, what makes Caligula such a fascinating character study? He's really quite a fascinating emperor. Uh, that's a, a very good question, because when we think about it, he came to power, he became emperor in AD 37, He was 24 years old. This was in a wave of enthusiasm. Was this a normal age to become emperor? No, well, you could, it's difficult to talk about normal because the Roman Empire empire had just been established two Mm. generations earlier. Yeah. So um, it it varied. Some some emperors came to power very old. the Emperor Nero, two emperors after Caligula, came to power at the age of 16. Mm. Uh, so I don't think 24 is, it's young, but it's not remarkably young, I would say. So he came to power at 24, the age of 24 in 37 AD. By 39, things were going wrong. By 41, he'd been assassinated. So he only reigned for four years. And yeah. It's just remarkable that after only four years, he is, along with Nero, he's the epitome of the villainous emperor, one of the most famous figures in history. And as I say, he, he's outrivaled, I think only maybe by Nero, but, you know, Nero reigned for 14 years, <laughs> so he had 14 years to work on his image, as it were. Yeah, Caligula, only four years. And there is... There's one general reason for this that I could give. It's, it's a little dull, so just bear with me for two or three minutes. It's to do with the sources that we have for this particular emperor. The, the most reliable writer of antiquity about this period of history is the historian Tacitus. And he, in fact, did write an account of, New, of Caligula's reign but it's missing. It's, we've lost it completely. So Tacitus can tell us little bits and pieces about his youth, but for his reign, we have to turn to two other major sources. One is the biographer Suetonius, quite famous. Um, Suetonius can't resist gossip. He can't resist anecdotes. And if you, if you want to find out that the Emperor Vitellius had a pot belly, or that Caligula couldn't swim. Suetonius is great for that, but he can be very unreliable as a historian. And the other major source is a historian, a Greek historian called Dio. He lived 200 years more or less, almost after the event. Like Suetonius, he can't resist gossip and anecdote. Unlike Suetonius, he's actually quite dull. But what we have here then are are two major sources who are writing what is often tabloid journalism. 
And so the, the fascination with Caligula is the kind of fascination I think we get when we want to read about Britney Spears or whatever mm. in, the, uh, in the tabloids. Um, there are these wonderful stories, largely, I mean, a lot of the time they're just simply unbelievable, but then they're down there in the record and often it's all we have to go on. And I think this is this to a large extent accounts for the um the 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 colourful nature of Caligula's reign as it has come down to us. Now I remember watching in the documentary and the, the that I found you the main guy, I don't remember his name unfortunately, but he mentioned that some I think it was him, but some emperors they weren't really that bad. They were just on the wrong side of the center. So is this the case with Caligula? Well, I think the the difficulty is with it's the word bad. You know what? What the word bad can cover a whole range of mm. um, can cover a whole range of um, of failings from I don't know. You could say from Adolf Hitler to Boris Johnson. You know, you <laughs> find people who say that they're bad rulers, and I, I think with Caligula, I, I'm not. I don't think that one could claim for a moment that he was a good emperor. He strikes me as being someone who was, he was um, self-opinionated, egocentric, arrogant, rude. Um, Is that with senators' wives? Uh, uh, well, this is, again, you see, this is the problem. This is the, the tabloid information we have. That um, that he had this uh, this this incredible sex life. In mm. fact, when he finally married his final wife, he seems to have been um, a devoted husband. You know, mm. who can tell? But I say I, I don't think I don't think that Caligula was by any stretch uh, a good emperor. But he had the misfortune. To be succeeded, he was succeeded by his uncle, Claudius. Claudius, after an assassination, Claudius had to try to show that it was a good thing that Caligula had been assassinated, not because the imperial system was particularly evil or bad, but because Caligula was a particularly bad emperor. And perhaps maybe even crazy that perhaps he was mad. And so I, I think that already from the time of Claudius, immediately after the succession of Claudius, the, the propaganda mill is in operation, uh, depicting uh, Caligula as an erratic, wild, perhaps, uh, perhaps mad, um, emperor who put to death lots and lots of people who wasted money who um, who almost destroyed the uh, the Roman Empire and I think the truth just lies somewhere in between I think if we consider it he came to power at the age of 24 he had lived in total obscurity up until then I think like any young man his head would have been turned by the um, by the sudden power that he found himself in. And I think he behaved 
probably irresponsibly. I say irresponsibly, without tact, without showing respect to those um, around him. But I would put him in the kind of middle range, an incompetent um, ruler, a mediocre, incompetent ruler. I don't think that he's um, a Hitler or a Stalin or, or the like. So let's go back to his early years when he's going to out in the battlefield. Not out in the battlefield, but he's in the very battlefield in, I think it's Germania, right? With his father. So t- tell me about his early years with his father. I mean, his, his, he's in Germany twice, but we, you want to go to the very earliest stay in Germany. Hmm. Yeah. All before right. his father gets assassinated. Pardon? Before his, when his, before, with his father, when, up until his father gets assassinated. Right. Well, I think I, I'd have to let, let me um, distinguish between two different phases mm. that he is in Germany. He goes to Germany first as, um, as a child, as an infant. And he is, um, and I, I should say something very briefly about his parents. He's, he's born in AD 12. His father, Germanicus, is arguably the most popular person in the Roman Empire. He was, um, he was the very opposite, in fact. The sources love to point this out to his son, Caligula. He was tactful. He was charming. He was deferential. He was uh, diplomatic. Uh, the sources absolutely love, um, love Germanicus. He was the uh, the grandson of Augustus's uh, sister. He was, com- he was appointed to a military command in Germany. If we look very carefully between the lines, he doesn't seem to have been a particularly brilliant commander, um, but the sources sort of try to cover up for his failings and boost his modest successes. Caligula's mother, Agrippina, was the granddaughter of the first Roman emperor, Augustus. Very, very proud woman, very, very conscious of her descent from Augustus. And she was very ambitious for her, her children. So Caligula was born in AD 12, and his mother took him to Germany to join his father with the legions. And this is when she dressed him up as a little soldier in a little soldier's uniform. And he became the, 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 the mascot, the pet of the, uh, of the soldiers. And this is where he gets his name from. The word Caliga is a soldier's boot. Caligula yeah. diminutive means a little boot. So he got the nickname of little boots from the, uh, from the, from the soldiers. So he grew up, he spent his, probably his early consciousness of life was growing up among the soldiers in um, in Germany. So, how does the assassination of his fa- of Germanicus affect Caligula? Does it affect him personally? Does it affect him at all at his age? Right. Well, you say the the assassination of Germanicus. Um, was he assassinated, or is it that just? A well, this is this is the problem is with the with this period. Almost every statement that one makes, you you 
you have to be cautious about it. What happened was that um, Augustus died two years after Caligula's birth, mm-hmm. and the new emperor Tiberius, who was a rather um, undiplomatic and charismatic individual, he'd been a, an excellent soldier. He was pushed by his mother to to seek the emperorship. He didn't really enjoy being emperor. And it is said that he was jealous of Germanicus. So he recalled him from the German legions. He recalled him from his position in Germany and sent him to the east on a special mission to uh, to settle a number of diplomatic problems with, with Parthia, the great uh, rival of Rome in the east, the, the forerunner of the modern Persia. So... Um, this was a job, of course, that, that could call upon Germanicus's talents, and he, was, um, uh, he seems to have done a very good job. He was accompanied by Caligula on this mission. Germanicus had three sons. The two older sons stayed in Rome. He went with uh, Caligula and with his uh, wife, Agrippina, and it all went splendidly well until late in AD 19, and Germanicus died. Now, do you, what do you think is a source? That, do you think it's a natural death? Do you think there was something behind this? What, do you, what is your opinion in this? Well, the, the, sources, the sources put it in the way that you put it, that he was assassinated, that he was poisoned. Um, this, was the, um, this was the claim. He was poisoned by the agents of uh, Tiberius or Tiberius's mother, Livia, because he was jealous of, um, of Germanicus's uh, popularity. But the thing is that Syria, it is known, was a very unhealthy province. Uh, we do hear of a number of prominent Romans who uh, went to Syria and they died of natural causes. And who knows? It's impossible, of course, to prove a negative. I couldn't prove that... Um, Germanicus, uh, his father, wasn't uh, murdered, but I don't think that it would have that it would have gained anything for um, for Tiberius to have uh, to have murdered him. So I would say, on the on, on balance, it's probably likely that he he died simply of uh, of natural causes. And so uh, so Caligula then had to return with his mother. Uh, to Rome, um, returning to a very, very difficult uh, situation. Um, His mother was Agrippina, as I've said, was tremendously ambitious. And she she was convinced that her husband had been murdered. And she was determined that one of her sons should become emperor. And in this, of course, she... She came into conflict conflict with Tiberius, but she also came into conflict with a man called Sejanus. Who was that? Sejanus was the commander of the Imperial Guard, of the Praetorian Guard. And he seems to have had ambitions of his own to take over from, uh, from Tiberius. And, of course, the sons of Germanicus would have stood in his way. And so we're told that Sejanus 
launched a campaign against Agrippina and against her, her sons. Caligula, it seems, was he was lucky in that he was the youngest. So it seems that Sejanus's um, focus was on the two older sons uh, and on Agrippina. And uh, Caligula seems to have kind of escaped notice because he was very young. And what happened was that uh, Tiberius eventually just became disgusted with the whole scene. You know, he was the man who loved to be out on campaign, loved to be living with his soldiers, enjoying all the hardships of camp life. He couldn't stand this fervid political atmosphere in Rome. Mm. So he left and went to live on the island of Capri. And we mm. know that in AD 31, early in 31, he summoned Caligula to Capri. So tell me about his life in Capri. And what happened to his brothers and his mother? His brothers and his mother were both, all three, sorry, were put into captivity and all three died. By, um, we're, we're not sure of the, um, we're, we're not sure of the exact circumstances, but probably forced suicide. We're told that one of them was starved to death, uh, even uh, ate the straw out of his mattress. And that um, Agrippina went on a hunger strike. But in any case, all three were arrested. All three died. Also, uh, another victim at this time was later in 31, Sejanus, the Praetorian guard, was brought down. And uh, Mm. he was uh, put to death and his family put to death. So we have Caligula now in Capri, his... His mother and two brothers, uh, we're not sure of the dates here, but either dead or imprisoned and eventually uh, to die. And he's now in Capri living with his, um, his elderly grandfather. It's a, mind-boggling, um, it's a mind-boggling situation, if you think about it. How old were he, as this word? I don't think you mentioned... How Caligula would have been um, 18 when he was uh, when he was summoned, so still a young man, but mature enough to understand what was going on. Um, does he feel like he's in prison? Does he? How does he feel about his own situation? Is he worried about his life at this point? We don't know. This is the, this is the difficulty because at this stage, of course, he's not of anyone of great significance. So. We don't get any details um, about um, how he lived. We're told that he was a complete hypocrite, that he just, um, he just um, went along with whatever Tiberius said. He didn't complain. There is one story that Tiberius would tell much, much, sorry, not Tiberius, Caligula would tell many years later, whether or not it's true, it's who can say, but he claimed that he went into Tiberius's bedroom one night with a dagger to seek revenge for his family, but then at the last moment felt sorry for Tiberius and left without doing anything. That's the only story that we have of any kind of reaction 
to um, to the situation. I think it must have been a mentally devastating one for him. I don't, I don't think that anyone would um, would be able to go through this experience um, without sort of suffering somehow spiritually, mentally, um, psychologically. The stories of Capri that are told about Tiberius are that it was a, a place of riotous living, of corruption, decadence, decadence, sexual exploits. I think that's very unlikely. Um, Tiberius, in fact, was a very serious, quite a scholarly individual. So you don't think the sexual stories are true? Not, not into, I think, not at all. In fact, Tiberius's idea of fun was to sit around talking to philosophers and scholars and discussing mythology and so on. Mm. And um, it is, it's said that he, um, that he spent, he put a lot of effort into educating Caligula. And I think that's probably true. And so I suspect that Caligula lived a fairly dull life when he was on, um, while he was on, on Capri. So some other sources tell that Tiberius didn't push senators off the cliff. Do you think that this is truth or just exaggerated but because of the dislike of Tiberius? Um, I think that um, I think that I think that Tiberius by the end of his reign had become quite disgusted with the senatorial order. Uh, as a group, and you have a number of um, of trials, of treason trials that go on. And I think Tiberius, in that sense, was quite a ruthless emperor. A number of senators, um, a number of senators did lose their lives. Um, you think you pushed them off the cliffs, as some no, people say? No, I, I was going to say, so I, I think as a ruler, he was... He was quite ruthless. I think he had very little regard for the senatorial order. He, he loved soldiers. He didn't like politicians. But the arbitrary cruelty, I, I, would, I would take that with a pinch of salt. I'm, I'm, not, persuaded. I'm not persuaded by those stories at all. I, um, I, I, I think he was, he was more a man who was kind of indifferent to the sufferings of others, not someone who enjoyed them. So Tiberius had a grandson as well, who was possibly going yes. to be heir to the throne. Now, the, Caligula, does Caligula want to be emperor at this point? And how do, does the tension between him and, and Tiberius' grandson, how is that? How does that work? Yes, well, Tiberius, yes, he did have a grandson who was uh, somewhat, younger than, um, somewhat younger than Caligula. He had been born... In fact, the grandson was born in the year that Caligula's father died, AD, uh, AD 19. And he was called a Gemellus, because he was, that's the Latin word for twin, because he'd been born uh, twin brothers, the other one died. And Gemellus was the, the natural son of Tiberius. But there's a slight hitch here, there's a, because it was claimed that the, the Tiberius's son's wife had had an affair with Sejanus, and it said that Tiberius was never sure 
that Gemellus was his natural grandson, or in fact, the son of Sejanus and his Tiberius's daughter-in-law. So we've got that twist to it. All of these things seem to have some sort of a twist. But in any case, Gemellus would have been the um, the other. He would have been, one might say, the natural successor to Tiberius, because Tiberius's son was dead. Tiberius's son had died. Uh, Gemellus had uh, survived. We have no idea of what um, Caligula thought of Gemellus, what their relations uh, might have been. Gemellus was presumably at this time in Rome. We don't even know that. We 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 don't hear anything about Gemellus. Uh, during this period. Caligula's ambitions, well, that's interesting. I said he had had a powerful, ambitious mother, Agrippina. And I suspect that Agrippina would have filled his mind when he was very small with the idea that he had a right one day to become emperor. Then he Mm -hmm. met two individuals on Capri, who had quite an influence on him in later life. One was a man called Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was the, the grandson of Herod, the great king, you know, famous for the stories of Jesus and the massacre of the innocents and so on. And Herod Agrippa was a very charming, affable individual. He seems to have been what you might call a likable rogue. He traveled the Roman world borrowing money and not paying his debts Mm -hmm. and then escaping his debtors, but he had enormous charm. And he... um, Was he sort of a con man in a way? A a sort of charming con man, you know. Um, uh, Someone, everyone who met him seemed to like him. He was someone you you would love to spend time with, but uh, you you'd be unwise to to lend money to him. Mm. So so um, so he became um, a good friend of um, of, uh, of Herod Agrippa, and it's said that Herod Agrippa um, encouraged him in the idea that he um, that he could one day become emperor. So that was one that's that's one factor. Um, the, the other is that he, he became um, the, the focus of attention of the man who succeeded Sejanus as commander of the guard. So there's an individual called Macro, yeah. who actually had played a role in bringing Sejanus down. Macro at that time had been the, the commandant, the prefect of the Vigiles, the, the fire service. And they had been used to bring Sejanus down. Macro seems to have had a sense that Caligula was likely to be Tiberius's successor. And he went to great pains to ingratiate himself to him. Why he thought um, um, Caligula would have been the successor, I'm not sure. But I suspect it was largely because of the name of Germanicus, Caligula's father. I can't emphasize that enough. You have to recognize that Germanicus's son, Caligula, became emperor. Germanicus's brother, 
Claudius became emperor afterwards, Germanicus's grandson, Nero, became emperor after that. And I think all three basked in the glow of Germanicus's uh, name. So I think this is what Macro would have felt. We're going to, um, the next emperor is going to be the son of Germanicus. So these two would have encouraged in Caligula. Was it, was it for his own personal gain as well, you think? It's very, very difficult to, um, to say because it's the same problem that we have with Sejanus. Would it have been possible for, for individuals outside of the imperial family to think of becoming emperors themselves? And you can't really answer that because this is a very early stage. I'm not necessarily talking about him becoming emperor, but for him to macro for personal gain and glory to yeah, yeah. sidewind sidewind yes. the Chaligula. That that is the other side for both Sejanus and Macro, you could say they might have been content to be the power behind the throne, to be the 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 the, 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 the number two individual in the state, the loyal the loyal lieutenant. So, but I think with both of them, I think we have to accept that they were they were very ambitious. Whether to be number two or whether it was to be number one, we can't really um, we can't really say. So this then is the situation at the time of Tiberius's death. That you have um, you have the young Tiberius, young Caligula on the island. Uh, under the influence of two quite powerful individuals in their own ways. Macro, as um, the brilliant strategist, uh, um, uh, a respected soldier. Herod Agrippa, as this sort of, uh, this charming, um, affable man of the court. And these two influences were uh, were playing on um, on Caligula. So this was the the situation in March... 37, when Tiberius died. So what happens when he dies, and Gemellus and Caligula? Is it there a competition for who is going to become the emperor? Or how, do, how does Caligula work his way through Gemellus? Well, this is, um, this is a, <laughs> this good question. We, we unfortunately can't, It's not exactly clear how this came about. What we know is that um, Tiberius, he'd been ill for some time. He died, um, not actually in Capri, but not far. He was on the mainland, but he wasn't in Rome. He was great. He was, you know, in the, the, the Naples area, essentially, um, where, when, uh, when he died, probably of natural causes. But, of course, there are all sorts of rumors that he had been, he was poisoned to death or starved to death or smothered by a pillow, either by Caligula. Sure, an emperor that wasn't assassinated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or what remarkably, um, Seneca writes, he actually just died. Hmm. He got up, fainted and died. I mean, that's a, a, yeah. rare, a rare event to have mm-hmm. an emperor who said he just, he just died of old age. Um So anyhow, um, we know that Tiberius died and we're told that Macro immediately sent letters to the military commanders 
Now, I have to explain that the, the, the Roman legions were not in Italy. They were not in Rome. They were out on the frontiers. So Macro sent messages to the messages to the military commanders to tell them that Tiberius was dead and that Caligula had succeeded. There's no real legal basis for this, but he sent out that information. And then Macro, we're told, made a hasty journey to the city. He met the Senate. He reported Tiberius's death. And he also, we're told, he reported that Caligula had succeeded Tiberius. Now, it can't have been as simple as that. I suspect that what had happened here was that Tiberius, uh, Macro, sorry, had worked behind the scenes. He seems to have been a brilliant strategist. He, uh, he brought Sejanus down very effectively. And I thought he, I think he raised Caligula up with the same kind of tactical skills. And we're told that he spoke to powerful senators before the meeting. And I think he told the powerful senators, he laid it out to them, look, Caligula has the support of the army. He has the support of the Praetorian Guard. You've got a choice. You can welcome him or you can try to oppose him. If you try to oppose him, you, you lose. If you welcome him, the rewards for you could be considerable. I'm only speculating here, but we can say that on March the 18th, only two days after Caligula had died, we have an inscription where we're told that the Senate proclaimed Caligula as imperator. And this, of course, is the word that gives us emperor. It really means a commander of the army. But by this time, it's starting to have this wider sense of someone who commands both the army and the, uh, and the state. So somehow or other, Macro brought the Senate over to his side. Now, there was the problem. You said, what about Tiberius Gemellus? Well, in his will, the Emperor Tiberius had left Gemellus and Caligula as his heirs. He didn't say as his successors to the emperorship, but only as the heirs to his estate, to share the estate equally. And we're told that, uh, that Macro had the will annulled. He had the will cancelled um, on the grounds that by this stage, Tiberius didn't have a clear mind. He didn't know what he was doing. So the will was cancelled and Gemellus was shut out of the, uh, of the will. So, uh, but Caligula does mention his successor. It's not right. Yes, yes. So you see, what what happens is that um, that uh, Tiberius, sorry, Caligula, now makes his way from the Bay of Naples area, makes his way towards Rome, and this is a funeral procession. He's coming with Tiberius's body. But it's described as a kind of great triumph that um, people came out to greet him and they, um, they, they showered him with, um, with, uh, with greetings, calling him pet names, their little baby, their chicken. 
Um, and he, he, this, I'm sure, was all stage managed by Macro beforehand, telling people to get out and to cheer him on. And so um, Caligula arrived in Rome at the... Um, at the, the end of March, in a great wave of, um, of popularity. And the, the Senate did two things. First of all, they granted him power. And this is an, an astonishing thing in itself, because if I just take half a minute to, to give a background here. Of course. You have two Roman emperors before Caligula, but the position of emperor wasn't really a legally defined position. It, it was, if you think of World War II, um, Adolf Hitler becomes the Führer. Uh, it, 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 he is the Führer, but there's no legal definition of what that is. Everyone sort of knows what it is, but no one could legally define mm. it. It's the same with the, the, the first two Roman emperors. Um, they they had auctoritas, they had great authority, but they didn't have an official office. There was no official office as emperor. And here we have, for the first time, the Senate, we're told, granted Caligula complete power in all things. This is the first time that this has happened in Rome. Tiberius and Augustus before him had power rather through their prestige, through their status, not because of any legally defined, um, any legally defined powers. So this was a very, very important stage in the evolution of the Roman Empire. And you could even argue that in a sense, Caligula was the first Roman emperor because he was the first to have this Official grant of power. Absolute power. Yes, and it was. It was absolute power. It's, it's the, we're told the terms of it. Complete authority over everything. And what is also interesting is, on what basis did the Senate grant him this power? Well, we're told that, um, that at the Senate meeting, there were members of a group called the Equestrians or the Knights. And these were the kind of the... The middle class, they were not senators, but they weren't ordinary Romans. So they were the prosperous commercial middle class. And also with the Senate meeting, they were members of the ordinary public. And you have great emphasis placed on the fact that Caligula was given these powers by consensus. It was the consensus of the ordinary people, the commercial middle classes, are the senators, the nobility. So this seems to have been the, the basis upon which these powers were given to, uh, to Caligula. And it's quite a remarkable uh, situation. And you might think it's, um, it could be quite scary because you've created, in modern terms, an absolute dictator overnight. But in fact... Caligula, at the outset, was behaved perfectly. And Tacitus uh, makes a, a wonderful comment talking about one of the emperors. who An emperor had just been assassinated, and the next one came and was greatly popular. And he says, after an evil emperor, 
the best day of the new emperor is the first one. So, you know, whenever there's a military coup, you see, these, you see it nowadays. Whenever there's a military coup, the new regime comes in and they're immensely popular. It doesn't take long for it to wear off. Mm. But you have that honeymoon period at the beginning. And um, uh, Caligula at first was immensely popular and he behaved extremely well. He behaved with great deference towards the, uh, the Senate. He carried out um, a series of, um, of very, very important acts. Um, one thing he did, he, first of all, he said he was going to take Augustus as his model, not Tiberius, but Augustus. And Augustus was revered throughout the whole of the Roman Empire to, at all periods as the first enlightened emperor. Now, I want to ask before you go on. Uh, does Caligula know the expectations that he has to live up to, to his father, Germanicus? Or does he, is he aware of the expectations that people have of him? Well, I, I think there were probably would have been two things going on here. That one would have been that Caligula himself was probably in great spirits. You know, he would have felt wonderful. And he would have had this euphoria that comes with this great position. And, of course, people would constantly have talked about his father and about his descent from Augustus. So he would have had this sense. It would be hard to imagine that a young guy his age could have behaved any differently of his sort of um, a sense of destiny, that, that this had happened because the, um, the fates had brought it about. And also, he would have had Macro and Herod Agrippa at either side of him, encouraging him in these ideas. But in any case, he, um, he abolished treason trials. I mentioned earlier that yeah. Tiberius had had a series of treason trials, so senators lived in fear. He abolished them, and he made a show of burning all the papers relating to the uh, to the trials of his family, just to show that it was a new start uh, and an amnesty for all those who'd been banished. Another very popular move: Tiberius's will had been cancelled. Now Tiberius, in his will, had made a number of secondary bequests to members of the Praetorian Guard, to um, to the people. There was to be a big um, handout of money to the Roman people. So Caligula went out of his way to say that he would honor these he would honor these um uh these bequests in the will even though he wasn't legally obliged because the will had been had been cancelled so he um he he recognized a kind of personal obligation to do this and to get back to the the question you asked me some time ago, how did he deal with Gemellus, Tiberius Gemellus? He did a very diplomatic thing. He adopted Gemellus as his son. And, and this would be common throughout the emperors. It was, it was a common way. Adoption, I should say, in Rome was a very common tool. It was much more... 
much more usual than it is in um, in modern society, and often quite elderly people were adopted, and you would have people who had parents, and the parents would um, would sometimes cast them off, throw them aside, so they so that the man could then be adopted by another family that had more wealth and could help them along in his career. So adoption was a very, very common social phenomenon in Rome. And Augustus, in his old age, had adopted Tiberius. Tiberius was a grown man, and Augustus adopted him as his son, as a sign that Tiberius would succeed. And adopting Gemellus as his son would have been a very clever move on Caligula's part. He might, he's thereby saying to those of you who actually would have liked to see Gemellus succeed, I can give you this assurance that when I pass on, uh, Gemellus will succeed me. So the, um, the, the rain started off very, very well. I mean, it started off um, at a, almost a blaze of glory. And this had goes on for the next six months. So can you tell me a little bit about what he do in his first his first six months as an emperor? Well, he he um, I mentioned he uh, he he gave out the um, he he paid off the uh, the uh, the bequests of um, he became the uh, the the bequests for the uh, for the Tiberius had made in his will. He also um, he also initiated um, a building program. Tiberius mm. had been very very frugal, and so um, so Caligula initiated this program of, uh, of building spectacular buildings. And most important of these was the uh, the, the temple to the divine Augustus. Augustus had been proclaimed a god after his um, after his death. Um, uh, Caligula, um, uh, the, the temple had been voted, but Tiberius didn't like to spend money, so um, so the temple was never finished. Uh, Caligula finished this, opened it in a spectacular ceremony. That kind of thing went down um, very very well with the Romans. And generally, um, Caligula was was quite extravagant. Um, he also made a great show of family piety, and he went out to the uh, to the islands where his mother and his brothers had died, and he he brought their bones back, or those bones that um, that he could find, because uh, in the case of the brothers, they had been uh, been scattered. So he made a big show of this and came back and placed them in the um, in the uh, the mausoleum of Augustus again in a grand uh, the, the tomb of Augustus in a great um, in a great cemetery in a, sorry in a great ceremony and um, and this sort of thing went down um, very very well with the Romans. He um, he introduced um, all sorts of measures in honor of his um, of Germanicus. He, he even had the month of September renamed Germanicus, mm. 
So you had July and August had been named after Julius Caesar and Augustus. And then the seventh month, September, he had and, uh, renamed after Germanicus. That didn't persist until after his death. Hmm. Yeah, you fell out a little bit. Sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I seem. I think we may have had a slight technical problem. Yeah, there seems to be this. So, okay. Yeah, you're good now. We're good. Should be good. I, I could hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Go on. Yeah. But I can't seem to hear you. Okay, there you we go. Yeah, no, there you go. Yeah, perfect. Okay, good, good, right. So this then was um, this then was his behavior in the uh, in the first six months, and then it it came to an end sometime before he died. He does yeah. bring back he does bring back his sisters as well. And I want to ask how come his sisters were able to survive and not his brothers? Right. Well. Um, Course. Now the sisters become a very important part of his life. Of yes. course. And can well, you tell course. me about this? Ben? Yes, the, the brothers had been put to death. In the Roman system, of course, um, uh, a woman couldn't hold office. A wooden, woman couldn't be emperor. So I don't think Sejanus, Sejanus would have worried about eliminating the sisters. He eliminated the brothers. Why his mother, if, he, if the yeah. woman can, can hold office, why did he eliminate his mother as well? Well, because his mother was uh, was was so powerful and popular, this is what we're told. His mother, she was the wife of Germanicus. She was the one who was um, was championing the um, uh, championing the cause of her sons. So she was obviously a great danger, and she played she played a political role. We also cannot rule out completely. We don't know this. But she may even have been involved in some kind of political plot. That's that's not impossible. That she was, in fact, guilty as charged. That she was plotting against um, Tiberius to have him replaced by her sons. Um, we we I don't think we can rule that out totally as a possibility. But the the, the sisters as um, as women at this period would not have been seen by Sejanus as uh, as threats. And so we have the situation where Caligula becomes emperor. Both of his parents are dead. His two brothers are dead. He's gone through what I think must have been psychologically a a horrendous uh, process. It would be natural that I think he would have looked to his sisters for family affection. Were they older or were they younger? They were older. All three were older. And um, and so he um, he honoured his sisters. Um, this is it is unusual honouring one's father and mother. That was Roman tradition. Honouring your sisters to the extent that he did was highly unusual. And he even had um, a special coin issued depicting the three sisters. This was unprecedented. That. Um, mm. No one in Rome had ever done that. Put their, put their, uh, they, they, put your, 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 your spouse, your wife on a coin. Uh, your, 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 
your brother, your son, but not your sisters. So this mm -hmm. was remarkable. And it led to... Um, it so, led but doesn't this give us an idea of what they actually look like if you if look at coins from Carnegie's era? Oh, well, not of the sisters because the um, what we have with the coin honoring the sisters that we have the three sisters together on the one coin. So it's not in any great detail. Hmm. Caligula himself, the coins of Caligula, yes, we got... Um, We have coins, um, the large coin, what's called a Cistercius, which uh, depicts uh, Caligula's portrait. And Roman coins of this period were, were strikingly realistic. You know that if you look at... So uh, we do, we do have, is this accurate how he is portrayed in, on the, in the coins and statues? I would say that the, the coins that we have of Caligula are pretty accurate depictions except I think maybe with the one exception that they give him a full head of hair, whereas in fact we know he had a bald patch. Mm. So they don't see that, but they're profiles, so I, I guess... Who wants a, want a bald hair around the coin anyway? Yeah, I mean, so... Yes. <laughs> uh, but, but Caligula was very sensitive about his bald patch. He, um, he, he wouldn't allow anyone to, um, to stand higher than him because they would look mm. down on his bald patch. It's like, you know, Prince Charles would never let, when Prince Charles was popular, when he was with Diana, they would never photograph him from behind because he had a bald patch. Mm. And men can be very sensitive about these things, yeah. <laughs> including Caligula. But on his coins, he, he, his image is quite unremarkable, even though the sources said he was hideously ugly and so ugly that he could kill a man by staring at him. <laughs> Believe that, if you will. But on his coins, he, he just appears fairly quite unremarkable. Um, and, and I think this would have been a fairly accurate uh, depiction of him. So how you, we mentioned that he falls ill. And how does he fall ill? There are conspiracies that it's, well, it was poisoned but it, or natural causes. What do, you, what do you think happened? And what happens after he falls ill? Well... Um, He became ill. It was, uh, was a very, very serious illness. We know that. It lasted for a considerable time. Much speculation by modern scholars about the nature of the illness. You know, was, it, was it some kind of brain fever? Uh, who knows? I think, I mean, some claim that he had a kind of nervous breakdown. I'm sure that stress would have played a large part in it. We know that Caligula was told that his personality, he was, he was a, a highly stressed individual, something of an insomniac. And he, he's, he's now at the center of affairs in Rome. He's got a very busy, active life. I think, um, I think he could have been gradually exhausted. So very prone to any kind of infection going around. But anyhow, we know that he was uh, he was seriously ill. But But, yeah, so and something I forgot to ask about as well. He has brought back his uncle as well. Does he does his uncle hope for the throne at this point? Oh this is um this is Claudius. Well yes one of the um one of the quite enlightened things that um Caligula had done uh, before the illness was that he had um, elevated uh, Claudius to, uh, 
to a position of, of honor and respect. Uh, Claudius was, um, was, was born with various defects. He had, a, he had a serious limp and he had a speech defect. Mm. And so the ancient world was quite cruel. I mean, it was quite cruel about these things. And they thought that he was, a, he was an idiot. They thought that he was mentally backward. And he was, um, the, the family was ashamed of him. And he was kept out of the public light. Now, in fact, Claudius was remarkably intelligent. And he devoted himself to studies and, and wrote histories and a study of the Etruscans. But he was kept completely out of things. We even have letters that have survived in Suetonius of members of Claudius's family saying, what are we going to do? We, we can't let him go out in public. We can't let him be mm -hmm. seen. It would be an embarrassment. But um, Caligula actually appointed him joint consul. This is the highest mm -hmm. magistrate in Rome with himself. So on uh, July the 1st, Caligula and Claudius uh, were declared, um, declared uh, consuls. And so, yeah, this was, um, this was a remarkable thing. Did Claudius aspire to become emperor? I think at that time, I can't imagine that he would have done because he was treated with such contempt. But I think... He was loyal to Caligula. Yes, I, I, think, I think at that time he wouldn't have felt he had any reason to be anything other than loyal because I don't think he would have felt that he had any hope. I would argue that that attitude changed and we can maybe bring this up again when we talk about Caligula's assassination. Mm. But I think at the outset, I think uh, Claudius would have been fairly safe. So this is where everything changed, and is this I I want to put in quote on this. Is this where it goes as people call mad? Is this where it goes on the wrong side of history? He goes on the wrong side of history, certainly, because from this from after his recovery, um, we find that the the, whole, the honeymoon period is over. The we find that um, he's he becomes suspicious, he feels he's surrounded by enemies he starts putting people to death. Was he mad? I, I would say there, I would be categorical and say no, because we find after that, I mean, mad in the, in the sense of clinically insane. He certainly wasn't. Because after that, we find that he, um, he is making quite rational decisions. Is it true that he didn't bring his horse in to have it? People have normal dinner and appointing senators. Right. Well, okay. So we're now going to come into the this whole question of his manners. Let me put it into a into a larger um, context, and I certainly deal with this issue of the um, of the horse. But let us let me put it into this this larger context. It is thought that Caligula was was mad, and some feel that it was the illness that sent him mad, that it was a mental problem, that, um, you know, some kind of infection of the brain that made him mad. Well, I would argue, no, this, this, this doesn't seem to be the case. Depending on your definition of mad, was Stalin mad? You know, a mm. man who brought about the death of millions, is he mad? In one sense, 
a sort of casual sense he is, but I don't think in a clinical sense you would argue that Stalin was mad. He was making hard, serious decisions. And I'd say Caligula was not mad, certainly not in that uh, clinical sense. But we find that things go downhill at that point. Is this when he started having intimacy with his sisters during Sweet Home Alabama before it was true? Well, no, the, the stories of his close affection with his sisters date to, uh, to earlier. They, they, they date to his, um, his time when he was, before he went to Capri. And some of the sources claim that he had intimate relations, he had sex with his sisters, and that he was caught in the act with one of them, with Drusilla, his, um, his favorite. The problem with incest is that it is the kind of charge that is often brought against one's enemies. You know, it was made against Napoleon, it was made against Hitler, If you want to discredit your enemy, accuse him of incest, partly because it's something that's impossible to disprove. But what is what is interesting is that there are two contemporary sources. They're not as important as Suetonius and Dio. They don't write as much as uh, as they do. But they do write about um, Caligula, and they were both living at Rome at the time. One of them is the philosopher Seneca, who thought that, um, that, that Caligula was, was evil. He was the most corrupt individual in Rome. The other was, um, was, a, was Philo. Philo was an Alexandrian, a Jewish Alexandrian. And he came to Rome as leader of a Jewish delegation And he thought that um, that Caligula was the enemy of the Jewish people. Mm. And he despised um, Caligula. Now, both of these people were in Rome. Both knew Caligula, both met him. Neither of those two says anything about incest. Mm. And I think if there had been stories about Caligula having incest with his sisters at the time, I don't think that these two could have resisted writing about them. So I think these stories of incest, I would think it's more than likely that they were simply added later. Um, they were simply added later to, to, um, to darken his character. As I said, once, um, once uh, Claudius became emperor, he had to find everything he could to, uh, to make um, Caligula look bad. And I think these stories would have probably originated Um, after that time. But, so we have, but again, I want to ask, was incest kind of common in the ancient Rome? Or was no, it... I mean, incest, it, well, in certain parts of the ancient world, the pharaohs of Egypt, for instance, married their sisters, mm. but they were considered gods. They were considered divine. Uh, so, I mean, that is not really typical. But no, In, um, in Rome, incest was considered horrendous. In fact, in, in Rome, you were not supposed to marry, even marrying your paternal uncle was considered incestuous. Mm. Uh, and that was something that was, was not allowed. I mean, it did happen, but under only special dispensation. So even, even that, even marriage with an uncle was... It was, it was frowned upon. 
it was frowned upon and and sex between you know parents and children brothers and sisters very much um it was impiety it was it was a sacrilegious act so i think we can yeah feel we we can say that that if if caligula had done this at the time certainly seneca and philo you know philo is takes a very high moral ground he's um he's a jewish philosopher very very moralistic and i said he condemns caligula for almost everything else but doesn't mention um and doesn't mention incest so i think we can feel fairly comfortable in 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 probably in the night in the rumors yeah. so in any case things have started to go bad after the um after the um the illness my own theory on this is that when caligula was ill he was ill for a long time the functions of government would have to continue right so you still have to deal with the senate you still have to deal with the army you still have to deal with um with uh, with foreign leaders and so right. on now who are going to be the key people in dealing with this well one would have been gemellus as the son mm-hmm. of caligula adopted son but to the romans adoption didn't make any difference if you're adopted you were the person's son and macro as the number 2 man and i think gemellus and macro would have carried on the business of government well when caligula recovered among the first two victims right after his recovery were gemellus and macro is it true that it forced gemellus to take his own life Yeah well I think it's uh, the story is reported is that Gamellus Gamellus seems to have been a very he very much keeps in the background he he was not it seems he didn't become he didn't become an adult until quite late normally it happened at 14 several years afterwards for Gamellus and he may not have been very advanced he may not have been very bright and it's said mm. that he was told to commit suicide and it's got this pathetic story very sad he was given the sword and he said he didn't know what to do with it and he asked them to show them to show him how to commit suicide with the sword mm. because he, and so they um so they helped them along with it that's the um the story which is not unlikely because often with suicide for instance as with the the emperor nero um you know you may wish to commit suicide but kind of lack the courage to do mm. it yourself so you'll ask sometimes a sympathetic friend to help you along so it's not implausible that that's how um that's how gemellus um gemellus died the circumstances of macro's death we um we don't know but and macro's execution is remarkable because macro you know he'd been the loyal henchman of caligula but we're completely in the dark about this we 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 we're not even don't even know the order in which people died we just have these little snippets of information but we know the things had started to go downhill and they kind of reached their pinnacle they reached a crisis point halfway through the reign early 39 right we're halfway through he comes to power in 
in 39, Caligula goes before the Senate and he denounces the Senate and says that from now on, the Senate is to be regarded as his enemies. Mm. And he blames the Senate for the deaths that occurred during Tiberius's reign. And he said, the evidence for this I have in these papers, and he produced all the papers that he was supposed to have burnt at the beginning of his reign. So, yeah. Uh, now, does does he? I mean, doesn't really take all the. It's not really mad, but does it take all the boats in the harbor of Rome? And well, this go is across this, okay. So what we have then? Yes, it's thirty nine. He has declared war on the Senate, and in this year, in the year thirty nine, we get. The, I have to say, it's the most important year of Caligula's reign. The evidence in this year is especially confused. So we get a number of acts that um, that make him look as if he's mad. We mentioned the horse, but first of all, I'll, I'll deal with the thing you've just brought up, the boats in the harbor. We're told that at some point in 39, boats were brought about from all over the Roman world and taken to the Bay of Naples, and there they were laid out in pairs to form a bridge, a pontoon bridge. This is a floating bridge, about three miles long, covering over part of the Bay of Naples, from Pozzuoli, Putili on one side, to the town of Bai on the other. And we're told that when it was finished, Caligula put on the breastplate of Alexander the Great, put on an oak crown, took up a shield and a spear, and rode over the bridge, followed by his troops. Spent one night in Pozzuoli, Putili, and then he rode back in a chariot pulled by racehorses. And for the Roman people, must have loved to see this. Pardon? The, the Roman people must have oh, loved fantastic. to see yeah, it. Yeah, for the populace, this, the people loved spectacles. Once at his destination, he gave away money. They would have loved that. He held a massive party. People would have loved that. And during which people got drunk and fell into the sea and drowned. So what is this? Is this, is this madness? Well, some of the sources say, yeah, he wanted to rival the god Neptune and show that he, uh, that he could ride over water. Another source says, well, there had been a prophecy that Nero, that, sorry, not Nero, that Caligula could no more become emperor than he could walk on water. So he was going to show, yes, I can walk on water. Uh, so I can both become emperor and walk on water. Hmm. However, one of the sources, um, and again, it's another Jewish writer, Josephus, famous, famous um, Jewish soldier in the Roman army who wrote a history of the Jewish people, very hostile towards Caligula, he says that this was a practical device to, to reduce the sea journey between Bai and Pozzuoli. So it may have just been a, a sort of grandiose construction device. Myself, I think what Caligula was doing at this point, I think it was highly irresponsible, but I don't think it was an act of madness. I think what he was doing was showing the Senate how powerful he was. 
I'm so powerful, I could build a bridge over part of the Bay of Naples and ride over it. So it's sort of like Louis XIV and Versailles, mm. you know, where you have an extravagant yeah. gesture as a display. He's showing the world what he's, uh, what he's made of. Mm. Well, another story um, associated with this, which you've touched upon, happening at uh, this time, was the story of Caligula and his horse. And this, I think, is arguably the most famous story. Is that just a conspiracy, or do you think it actually... Well, this is a case of looking very carefully at what the sources tell us. First of all, as background, Caligula was obsessed with races. He loved the racetrack. And the, the, it was like you know, football hooliganism. Um, there were different teams. There were the Reds, the Blues, the Greens. Mm. And they had their followers and there were fights. There was bloodshed. Um, people were put to death. The, the, the... It was initially politics, if I remember correctly. Oh, sorry, it was sorry? It was initially politics. Well, yes, yes. I mean, it was very much tied up in that. And, um, but there was a big fan base and they were fanatical. Um, I mean, they were genuine fans in that literal sense. They were fanatical. So Caligula was... Um, it's kind, so it's kind of like how people react to the Super League right now. Yes, yes. I, I, <laughs> it's, um, but at least, um, at least even football hooligans, they tend to beat each other up. But in Rome, I mean, you'd go out and you would kill the members of the, the other supporters. And for the so, football fans, it ain't that bad. Yes. So anyhow, Caligula was, um, uh, was uh, obsessed with the races. This wouldn't have done any harm because the Romans would have loved this. The Romans would have approved of his enthusiasm about horse racing. And he had a favorite horse race, sorry, a favorite horse, Incitatus. And Incitatus lived in, um, in a gated community, as we say. He lived in a secluded stable, so he wouldn't be disturbed by noise. He even had gold vessels that he, um, that he ate from. And we're told, the popular story, we're told that, um, that Caligula made his horse consul. Mm. He'd made his uncle Caligula consul earlier. He now made his horse consul. And this has passed into, into our culture. And almost every time there's a new political appointment, someone will say, oh, the appointment of... Um, the appointment of Macron, this is the most bizarre appointment since Caligula made his horse consul. And they say that about almost every, every new political leader. Someone somewhere will say it. Very important to look here carefully at, um, at what the sources say. Dio says that he promised to make his horse consul. Suetonius says... There were rumors of a plan to make the horse consul, right? So, so he didn't, no one actually says that he made his horse consul. People only says 
say that he had this in his mind, right? Did he make people have dinners with the horse, as the source said? Well, no, it said he, he, he invited his horse. These are the stories that go around, that he invited his horse to the table where it would eat out of uh, fine dishes. Um, well, I, I don't know what truth there is in these stories. When I was a young boy in village in England, there was a German lady, an eccentric German lady, who had a big Alsatian dog. And you'd go there for lunch, and the Alsatian dog would sit up at dinner with a napkin mm. round its neck. Um, <laughs> I, there, there are people, people who have these strange habits with their pets. Mm. I don't think it makes them mad. I think it's eccentricity, rather, and a way of making people feel awkward and embarrassed. And I think there's an, a key element here that we have to take into account with Caligula that people often don't. Caligula had a very cruel sense of humor. And I know we normally don't think of Caligula as a funny guy. He did have this very very, very pronounced idea of humor it was usually at someone's expense. It was usually kind of cruel and unkind. And I suspect that what happened with the horse thing is that Caligula was approached by the senators. Whom do you wish to designate, to nominate as the candidates for the Senate this year? Caligula is at this time in a great battle with the Senate, and he looks at the Senate, he says, well, when I, when I look at the, the talent, you know, if I think of the best individual for the job, I think my horse could do better than you lot. Mm. And I think it's very, very dangerous in public life to make jokes about these things because you can guarantee that your enemies will take the jokes and present them as something said seriously. Hmm. And you will pay for this afterwards. And I feel fairly sure that what happened was this comment about his plan to make the horse consul. Remember, it's important to note, no one says that he made the horse consul, but that he, uh, that he planned to. So I think we can probably put it in that category of his, um, his humor. And I think also these stories that he wanted to become a god, I think we can put in the same classification of um, when he said, oh, I, I'm going to build um, a house up on the Capitoline Hill next to the Temple of Jupiter because I want Jupiter as my neighbor. Or I'm going to put the Temple of Castor and Pollux as the, the vestibule, as the entrance to my house, because I want to have Castor and Pollux, these two gods, as my, my gatekeepers. I think these were, were kind of dark jokes that he made yeah. that, um, that people either misunderstood or they deliberately uh, misrepresented. And one of my favorite stories is about a general called Vitellius, who um, was very successful in Syria at the beginning of the reign, and he returned, and Vitellius met Caligula, and it said that Caligula said, I've got the moon here with me, right? the moon. Mm. <laughs> Can you see her? <laughs> and, um, no. This is 
this you think this is someone who's crazy. This is yeah. This man has to be mad. You have to see the context here. Did he mean this is like Italian... a gold spot on on the top of his head, or did he? Sorry, did he? Mean mean his bald patch on, I didn't on the top. Him. Did he mean mean his like bald patch on the top of his head as a joke, as a moon reference to the moon, or did he? <laughs> Oh no, I don't think he ever joked about his bald patch. That that would have been uh, kept entirely out. But but Claudia but Caligula asked Vitellius if Vitellius could see the moon. Mm. What we have to know about Vitellius is that he he rose to great prominence under three emperors: Caligula, Claudius, sorry, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. And he did this because he was a flatterer. He was obsequious. He told the emperors what they wanted to hear. And I think Caligula knew about this reputation and was enjoying a great joke here. He says to Vitellius, do you see the moon next to me? So how is Vitellius going to answer? If he says yes, well, it shows that he's just a flatterer. You know, this is, this is embarrassing that he would say yes. No one would take him seriously again. If he says no... He's insulting Caligula. He says he's would say. Um, so what oh, can he do? What can he do? But this is why Vitellius managed to thrive and succeed and die in his bed, a rich and powerful man. He fell on his knees and said, "Sir, only you gods can see other gods. We mortals cannot see gods." Mm. So you see, he got a bit of flattery in without. Without being totally flattering, without not saying, being des- without, without sounding desperate. Yeah. So you see, I think this is Caligula having a joke at um, at Vitellius's expense, mm-hmm. and we see that Vitellius was clever enough to um, to uh, to get out of it. So that I think is a is another um, another case of um, yes, it's a it's it's another case of Caligula's dark humor. Um, adding to his his unfortunate reputation for for madness. So that bring speaking of madness, it's also an, an, another popular conspiracy against Caligula is that he waged a war on the sea. And is this when he went to attack the go try to conquer Britain? Well, in AD thirty nine, there was um, we, we know that he he put to death the commander of the German armies, a man called Gaetulicus, accusing him, him of being involved in a conspiracy against him. And he replaced him with a man called Galba, who um, was a, a soldier, very able and competent soldier. And Galba went to uh, Germany to, um, uh, to restore discipline in the German legions. And we're also told that at the end of 39, Caligula left Rome on a military campaign. How, there's a big problem with our sources that when they're writing about Rome and things in Rome, we've got to be very careful what they say. When they write about things on the frontiers, It's even worse because they don't understand what's going on. They get things confused. 
They don't have proper sources. They don't have archives for their information. So the foreign wars, the foreign affairs of the emperors are almost impossible to disentangle. So it's difficult to tell exactly what was going on, but we're told that Caligula left Rome in uh, late 39, that he, um, he, he went first to, uh, to Germany, where he engaged in foolish maneuvers. He would chase the enemy over the Rhine and then run back. And he went up the Rhine doing this. He would, he would march into Germany, and then he would run back. And then we're told he advanced to the English Channel, drew up his troops, went out to sea, came back, and told his troops to advance into the ocean and to collect shells and to bring them back to Rome to celebrate the victory over the ocean. Now, this sounds like stark raving madness, you would mm-hmm. say. But and was there some the... psychological thought behind this, or was it just madness, as you call it? I don't think it was any of that. I think when we look carefully... Remembering that all these stories are coming back to Rome with third, fourth hand, I think we can we can work out a fairly rational explanation of what happened. First of all, there was there were good grounds, political grounds, for taking action against Britain at that time. The the king, the British king Cornebulinus, the great king, who had had a kind of modus vivendi with Rome. He had was was did Britain was Britain united or did it have several kings? No, there, there were several kings, but Cunabellinus was considered the the great king. He was the most powerful, and although the other kings were independent, this is in the south of Britain, hmm. they would respect him and follow his guidance, hmm. and and he kept a kind of. Uh, a kind of rapport with Rome. He wasn't pro-Roman by any means, but he kept things stable. Cunabellinus died, uh, Cunabellinus, and he was um, he was succeeded by a very nationalistic son, uh, Caraticus. And Caraticus started to to um, he 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 assumed a very anti-Roman stance, and he started to conquer the British tribes south of the Thames into that part facing Gaul. And the the tribes, the Celtic tribes of Gaul and Britain had very close ties with one another. I mean, they originated from the same people mm-hmm. and they're very, very close family links. And the Romans were always afraid that, um, that, that the British could stir up trouble in Gaul by provoking the the Gallic tribes to uh, to rebel. So there were good political realpolitik. I'm not advocating war here, but as a rational realpolitik, there were good reasons to do something about Britain. Now, Caligula goes up to Britain, but he goes up the, the Rhine River, and we're told he engages in these strange activities, marching over the Rhine and then marching back. Well, if you think about it, if you're going to invade Britain with a Roman army, if you're going to do that, you really have to make sure that you have your lines of communication 
absolutely secure. It would be a disaster if you sent your legions to Britain and then the Germans broke over the Rhine and occupied Gaul. And there had been German raids into Gaul during the time of the previous commander, Guy Tulicus. So what you needed to do was not try to conquer Germany. That would be impossible. The Romans had tried that before. You mean Britain? No, no. First of all, I say you have to, what you have to do first, Mm. you have to secure the Rhine frontier. Right, right. You have to secure the Rhine frontier because you've got to prevent the Germans from from moving over. Oh, yeah, of course. Supplies. But you know, there's no point in hoping you can you can occupy Germany. That that was not possible. So what you do is give a show of strength along the Rhine, have limited engagements along the Rhine frontier, and I think that's the origin of the stories about um, about Caligula leading his army over the Rhine and then withdrawing, and then we know that eventually, Claudius finished the task that Caligula had started. He conquered Britain in AD 43. Hmm. So he conquered Britain uh, two years after Caligula's death. He used the legions that Caligula had raised. And we know that, that Galba, the new commander of the Rhine legions, was still engaged in pacifying the Germans right up until 43. So... I think this was this explains his activity in Germany. So Caligula then goes to the English Channel. It's very awkward for him because I think from the fact that Claudius waited two years before he invaded, it was clear that the Rhine frontier was not secure. So the invasion of Britain could not take place. But he had a godsend. And this was because one of the descendants of Cunabulinus, a prince called Adminius, rebelled and he crossed over from um, he crossed over from Britain to Gaul to surrender to the Romans. Mm. And I think at this stage, and we know that this happened, and I think Caligula recognized here, ah, I've got a godsend. I can now say. I've conquered Britain without actually even have to fight a battle. Hmm. Here is this British king. He's come over and surrendered. Now, having accepted the surrender of the British king, he can now go back to Rome and celebrate a triumph. And a triumph is an official term that means a grand procession through Rome in which he displays all of his captives and his weapons and his spoil. So he has, to, he has to display the spoil of his conquest of Britain. Well, what is the best form of spoil? Traditionally, the conquest of Britain, this had always been a goal of the Romans. Julius Caesar had attempted it with limited success. Claudius would attempt it two years after Caligula's death. The conquest of Britain was always viewed as the conquest of ocean, that this was the ocean encircling the earth. You conquer Britain, you now become master of the ocean. So what is the best thing to take back to Rome to represent your victory over ocean? 
seashells. Mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of explanations given for the seashells. Some say, oh, they confuse it with the with the word for a tent, or they confuse it, it meant little boats. I think, it, I just take the story as it's told. He told the soldiers to go to the ocean, collect the seashells, and this would be taken back to Rome, and in a great display, here are the shells of ocean which Rome has finally conquered. So I think, I think then there is a, a fairly rational explanation of the British incident. So they, they, he did not actually declare war on Neptune or on the ocean? No, he didn't, no. I mean, he, 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 had, he left Rome on the grounds that he was going to conquer Britain. And when it became obvious that he couldn't really conquer Britain, but he had this surrender of the British king, a minor king, not a particularly important king, but nevertheless a king, which he could present at Rome as a conquest of Britain, this became symbolically also a conquest of ocean. And Claudius, who certainly wasn't mad, Claudius was the most, one of the most able ever of Roman emperors, when he conquered Britain in 43, they put a naval crown on his palace, Right? They put a naval crown symbolizing that the conquest of Britain was a naval victory. So, you see, even with Claudius, he saw the importance of emphasizing that it was a victory over Okeanos. But it wasn't declaring, it's not really declaring war on the sea. He declared war on Britain and then pretended that he had won Britain and in defeated Britain, and in doing so, now the now Okeanos was part of the Roman Empire. So it's been four. No, it's been it's the fourth year of his reign, and his final days are coming to an end. And what makes the Senate finally conspire against Caligula to murder him? Well, we have uh, Caligula. Returned. And how do they murder him? Well, Caligula returns from um, from his northern expedition in early forty in early forty, um, and a year later he is assassinated. Now, there is in the interval there is a conspiracy or several conspiracies. It's difficult to tell. You know, the nature of a conspiracy is that it has to be kept secret from the person you're conspiring against. So you only get information about a conspiracy afterwards. And of course, afterwards, people always want to give their own account of events. So it is very difficult to figure out exactly what happened. But what you can say in broad terms, that by the time he returned, his relations with the Senate have now descended to the worst possible level. He's now having senators executed um, in fairly frequent succession. Uh, the senators are feeling terrified. Importantly, however, the, the key to power in Rome was not, not really the Senate. It's the same as it is with every country the world over, unless 
unless they're constitutional countries. You know, I mean, you wouldn't worry about this in Norway, I'm sure. But for most of history in most parts of the world, the key to power is the army. Mm. And the great mystery, the great mystery with Caligula, it's not so much why did the Senate conspire against him and turn against him. Uh, they had every good reason to because things were, if anything, even worse than what they were under Tiberius. It's why the Praetorian Guard turned against him. So why did they? Well, it's, it's, this is a big question. We're told that the, the man who actually struck the blow was a tribune of the Praetorian Guard, a man called Cassius Chirea. And we're told that he did this out of, um, he did this out of idealism because he, want, he wanted a return of the Republic. He wanted to get rid of the imperial system. Well, that is totally unbelievable. The, the Roman, the imperial guard was a part of the Roman army, but it was a privileged part of the Roman army. They, they lived in Rome. They had extra money. They were given special salaries. So they weren't living in some dreadful, you know, weren't living in the north of England mm. or wherever. They were, they were living in Rome and they, had, um, they lived in comfortable barracks with, uh, with special um, privileges, um, financial and so on. There is no way that the Imperial Guard would have wanted to get rid of the Imperial system. So that is one of the mysteries. And all that we can say is that in AD 41, um, in January AD 41, there was a festival on the Palatine Hill that in the course of this festival, Caligula went to have lunch. He went into an underground passage. Um, and in the course of his, um, of the, this walk through the underground passage, Cassius Chirea and one of the other officers of the Praetorian Guard turned on him and stabbed him. And he fell wounded and the other members of the Guard went and stabbed him and eventually killed him. And as Dario said, Caligula finally learned the truth that he wasn't actually a god, <laughs> as he believed he was. So, well, how did Dario know that? But anyhow, that's, that is the story. Um, and that is probably basically sound. Um, so Cassius um, Chirea, Chirea um, assassinates Caligula. Well, why would he have done that? And I think we have the answer to that in what follows, because what we're told is that after the assassination, the Praetorian guards started to ransack the palace. They went for loot. And while they were going for loot, they, they opened a curtain, and behind the curtain was Claudius, right, Caligula's mm -hmm. uncle. And Claudius, we're told, was terrified, and he fell to his knees and said, please don't kill me, I'm harmless. I, um, I had nothing to do with this. And, and it's said that the soldier who found him said, oh, here's Claudius. Why don't we make him emperor? Almost <laughs> as if it's a, a kind of spontaneous thing, almost a joke. And the other soldier said, that's a great idea. So it said they... Were they hoping, they, to, were they hoping to use Claudius as a puppet? Well, yes. Or, yeah, just, uh, or as a kind of, as a foolish... 
a foolish sort of gesture or, you know, this is like a student prank. Mm. This is how it's depicted. And the other soldiers had a great idea and it said that Claudius was terrified. He, 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 was, he couldn't stay upright. His, his, his knees gave out as they carried him off to the Praetorian camp. Now, this is the story that we're told, and I don't believe it for a moment, because what happened next, we're told, is that Claudius, who was supposedly, this happened by chance, that he was found by chance, that he was terrified, we suddenly find that he's, he promises money to the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guards swear their loyalty to him. He then uses Herod Agrippa. Remember, this is the... Yep. The Jewish friend of uh, Caligula, he now, Herod Agrippa, very smart, he now starts to get friendly with Claudius, and maybe he had before. I, he was a friendly, amiable man. Herod Agrippa is now used as a go-between between Claudius and the Senate, and Herod Agrippa now goes to the Senate and says, forget your idea of, um, of, uh, of restoring the Republic. Claudius is now your next emperor. Um, you, you should really accept the fact. And um, now I find that the most implausible series of events. I'm utterly convinced myself that Claudius was in this from the outset, mm. that this was an arrangement with the Praetorian Guard. The arrangement was the Praetorian Guard would... The, what, I think the Praetorian Guard probably saw that Caligula was behaving in such a way that he became a threat to the imperial system, that there was, he would end up being assassinated. There was a danger that the imperial system would, would fall apart. This would not be to the advantage of the Praetorian Guard. So the best thing for the Praetorian Guard to do was to make sure that they, they were part of this. And I think this is Claudius and the officers of the Praetorian Guard acting in, uh, in concert. I mean, it's quite, this is the first time we have it stated as a historical fact that after the Praetorian Guard proclaimed Caligula as their emperor in their barracks, he then gave them an enormous donation an enormous bonus for this. And so he essentially bought their loyalty. And, um, and I think, yeah, this had enormous repercussions for Caligula because Claudius was a historian. And the, the first accounts that we will get of Caligula come from, from Claudius. Claudius is a historian. Now, what are the other historians going to do? Are they going to say, well, I want to look at both sides? Not at all. They would, they would follow the lead of the emperor. And whatever story Claudius was giving out about Caligula, about his madness, you know, his eccentricities, his cruelty, his incompetence, the other sources would have followed on and would have reinforced this image that um, that Claudius was trying to propagate. So I want to ask in the end, what is your personal impression of Caligula? Well, I think that 
generally, it, I would go back to what I said uh, that said earlier. I don't think, I don't think he was mad in the clinical sense. I, I think he does manifest that um, that old saying about the corruption of power. I think he was an unremarkable young man put in this enormous position of power. He was someone, he had no training for the job. He had no, I think he was probably a reasonably intelligent person, but he had no training. He didn't have the kind of diplomatic tact that you needed to do to do the job um, effectively. He doesn't seem to have had the charisma of his father that he could win loyalty. So I think generally he was, um, he was, he was kind of incompetent and not much more than that. And I, I think he was, although, you know, right at the beginning we said, you know, he's such a fascinating individual. I think he was probably largely an unremarkable individual thrust into a remarkable situation. Mm. He made a complete mess of it. And it was in the interest of those who followed to show that um, he made a mess of it because he was he was utterly crazy because he was mad. And the most I think the most astonishing thing to me about the story of Caligula is that these same senators, what thirteen years later went through exactly the same process. Mm -hmm. They handed power over to an even younger man, to Nero, to a 16-year-old Nero. They made Nero the emperor of the Roman world. And many of these senators would have been the same senators, you know, would have been still alive, the same senators who'd handed um, power over to, um, to Claudius. You, you would have thought that the Senate would have thought, yeah, maybe we're asking for trouble because they got it with, uh, with Nero. And um, it, it's a depressing story to me because it shows me what Winston Churchill said, the, the total unteachability of mankind, that although we say, you know, we should read history because otherwise we'll repeat our mistakes, we study history, but we still repeat our mistakes. Just look at COVID-19, how we repeated history with the Spanish flu. Absolutely. We don't learn from history. We keep saying that we, this is why we study history, but we don't learn from it. And it's a, it's a depressing thing. And I think that the story of Caligula and what happened after Caligula is the epitome of this ignorance of what history should warn us about. So do you really think that he, when he fell ill was a turning point? Or was it just something historians like to kind of in a... I, want, I don't think it's the right word, but romant, romanticize that this is when everything changed. Do you think that's the truth or do you think it's just... I, I, yeah, I mean, I think you can say... I mean, it's very turning points of history. Or it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult concept because you know, history is a continuous process. Mm. But I, I would say that when Caligula became emperor and the Senate bestowed on him this, um, this absolute power, bestowed on one individual absolute power, I think that was constitutionally a turning point because it really established the Roman Empire emperor as, the, um, as this omnipotent 
uh, individual, not not simply an administrator as Augustus and Tiberius were, and also the way he came to power. He, he demonstrated that he could that in Rome you could come to power thanks to the Praetorian Guard. And Claudius also came to power because of the Praetorian Guard. Nero afterwards came to power very largely because he had the support of the Praetorian Guard. And this was a destabilizing phenomenon throughout Roman history that uh, to, to get power as often as not, the key was to get control of the Praetorian Guard. So I think in a way that not so much Caligula himself, but the phenomenon of Caligula, the phenomenon of a young man who was the candidate of the army. So the army played that part of the role, the Senate playing its role, uh, bestowing unlimited powers on him. I think that did mark a, a very, if not a turning point, a very important stage in the development of the Roman Empire. And of course, as a consequence, the European history after that. Thank you for so much for coming on. Before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote on social media where people can find you? Well, I don't know about um, promoting, but <laughs> I, 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 I'm happy to have the opportunity to mention that I, I've, um, I've just recently brought out um, a book with Princeton University Press on um, Nero and the, uh, the Great Fire of Rome. And, and I, I do there something like what I've been doing today, taking the, the stories and the myths about Nero and his role in the fire, fiddling while Rome burned and so on. And I try to put them in historical context. And I'm, I'm also working on a, on a book on Caligula's sources, not on Caligula. It's not a biography of Caligula, but on the, uh, on the sources and how we should approach them and analyze them. Uh, that won't be out for another year or so, but, um, but that's my next project. So this has been World Age 12. Next week, we go, we'll go even further back in time and talk about dinosaurs. And then you can find us on Instagram, World Age 12. You can listen to this podcast wherever you can listen to podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Well, yeah, my name is Alan. This has been World Age 12. Thank you so much for coming, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. I'll see you next week. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. I I always enjoy uh, talking about Caligula and I enjoy talking on the radio. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. You're welcome. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.